Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. It was just over a year ago that a Texas woman named Sandra Bland died under mysterious circumstances while being held in jail after being arrested at a routine traffic stop. Among the many unanswered questions was this. How often does this sort of thing happen? Well, in one of the most exhaustive investigations the Huffington Post has ever undertaken, we scoured the public records to find out how many people have died in jail in the year since Sandra Bland's death. And what we discovered was staggering. Joining us to discuss it today are the two lead reporters on the story, Ryan Riley and Dana Liebelson. Meanwhile, this week, Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders bestowed his endorsement upon Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. But while there's now a larger unity among the broader Democratic base, it was a bitter moment for Sanders' diehard supporters. We're joined by one such diehard, Tim Black, the host of The Tim Black Show, who will give us an idea about the future of Sanders' movement and what, if anything, Clinton can do to win people like him over. Finally, we are taking our talents to Capitol Hill this week to visit Wisconsin representative and friend of the podcast, Reed Ribble, at his office. The retiring congressman talks about one last piece of bipartisan business he hopes to get done before he heads home, and we'll ask him if a little bit of legislator quid pro quo might actually help Congress function again. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Dana Liebelson, Ryan Riley, and Lauren Weber. All of that, plus, we'll preview the upcoming Republican and Democratic conventions. But here's what happened first. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly digest on political goings on. My name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. This week, uh, a peaceable kingdom was made at least the appearance of one, in the Democratic Party when Bernie Sanders, senator from Vermont, came together with Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire to provide her with the endorsement she has sought since the AP gave her the clinching bid of the nomination. Uh, But it does raise a lot of questions about whether Sanders supporters feel like the Sanders campaign got everything out of this whole process that they deserved and wanted. And what will Bernie Sanders supporters do from here now that the primary is technically and officially over and we're moving on to conventions and the general election? Joining me to talk about this is my colleague, Arthur Delaney. Hi. And on the phone, we are happy to have Tim Black, host of The Tim Black Show, which you can find on YouTube and iTunes. Tim, how are you doing today? Man, I'm over here licking my wounds, Jason. I'm over here just struggling after listening to what appeared to be, man, the the, uh, the end of Bernie Sanders' uh, progressive movement for him as the leader of it, I should say. So, Tim Black, on Tuesday, Sanders made a really rousing endorsement of his rival Hillary Clinton, but you're not feeling that? You're not persuaded by Bernie that she, that's time to support Clinton? It, it feels like politics. 
Jason, it feels like politics. It feels like Bernie said what he needed to say, um, and I just can't get behind that. I can't support it. I mean, I've told people all along that, yes, you know, Bernie is in this position with us in this movement, but at any point in time, other people will need to step up. He is not a one-man movement, and that's why we have other people. That's why I'm out there. That's why H.A. Goodman's out there, Debbie Lucignan, Mike Figueroa. We're all out here, too, all of us pulling together. So, man, we got to do it now because Bernie has really – I'm not going to lie to you, Jason. This was a hard hit to the movement. Well, let me – I mean, I think don't, – don't you think the movement deserves a lot of credit? I, there was a lot of argument as to whether, whether Bernie Sanders – uh, should hold out as long as he did. And I, I sort of never caught into that notion. I thought that you may as well stay in and keep keep working at the margins to get what he wants out of this process. Um, by and large, I think the Democratic Party platform as a, as a document, we know it's a non-binding document, but it does sort of set like party squad goals for the coming election. It's uh, it's it's much improved uh, over over the last Democratic Party platform. And I think that uh, Sanders and the people that he sent to the platform committee deserve a lot of credit for making some pretty big changes. Yeah, you know, um, the thing is, man, you can't spend with nickels. Like, you, you know, I don't know if this is a real, is this real currency that we have with the Democratic Party? Or did they just, the DNC just kind of say, well, you know what, hey, let's throw these guys a bone and at least shut them up for a while and maybe we can win this election and then we can go back to being what we were. We can do a little shape-shifting. And that's the problem, man. See, I don't know, and how will you ever know if they will stick to these allowances that they made? And if you got to push me left or you got to push someone left, when the time comes, will they stay left? Tim Black, are there, are there uh, a few specific things that Sanders campaigned on that you're concerned Hillary Clinton doesn't really agree with? I think if you want to take a dent, put a dent into the uh, prison industrial complex, which is a very important issue for me and my constituents, man, you got to decriminalize marijuana. You just got to do it, brother. Um, that's a concern. Um, the, the college tuition, they kind of they kind of made some concessions there, too. I mean... If you're making, I don't know about you, but, you know, $85,000 is, is not a lot of money for a family to make. I mean, um, it, it, somebody could make that amount of money if they got four kids and not be able to qualify for the tuition idea that Hillary and DNC have signed off on. So that's still a concern. I mean, we could go on and on, but more, more so I'm looking at so, also the war hawkishness of Hillary. Yeah. That's the real concern, man. Like, we are looking at this and we're going... Guys, this no-fly zone over Syria, these thoughts that Hillary has had, these votes she's made. Folks, I do not want World War Three, <laughs> And um, I will not be afraid of Trump to the point where I would vote for that. So uh, there are a few things that Sanders himself mentioned in his uh, endorsement speech. He said Hillary Clinton supports public health insurance, uh, lowering the age for Medicare, allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices. And, and, of course, the Democratic platform being more liberal. And those don't feel to you like such great... Oh, they do. They do appeal to Jason. Yeah. See, that's the thing. They appeal to me, brother. It's just I don't know if she will stay that way. Hillary has been for everything and against everything at some point in time. One thing about Bernie, he's pretty much been Bernie. Call him cantankerous. Call him, you know, uh, stubborn. But at least he sticks to his guns. And not and Hillary kind of doing the move thing from time to time. We don't know what we're getting. That's the problem. 
just I, I think that there's uh, probably going to be another uh, big sort of inner party fight uh, as the action moves from the platform committee to the rules committee now. Um, but I wanted to sort of like uh, just sound you out on the on the future of Bernie Sanders movement, which you, 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 you seem a little bit downcast on in terms of like Sanders ability to now serve as the de facto leader of that movement. But throughout this entire process, I've kind of thought that one of the things that this process has demonstrated is that maybe it's a little bit overrated to be president. Uh, and and I, I know that sounds crazy. I think that Democrats tend to think of the presidency as like the big show. It's the big dance. That's the job you got to compete for. But I see the progressives are getting outworked at local and state levels and state legislatures and county boards across the country. And I don't see a lot of Democrats even competing to run for some of these offices. Um, is there a possibility that uh, the Sanders movement could become a larger, wider electoral movement competing in these sort of seats out there? Because my thought on this is that for all the complaints about superdelegates, you get to be a superdelegate when you're literally just a member of the House of Representatives, a member of the Senate. You get to the Senate by starting small and working your way up, as Bernie did. He was the mayor of of Burlington, Vermont. Um, Isn't there a chance that maybe in a few election cycles we could see people from the Sanders movement becoming those superdelegates if we don't if we don't get rid of them that is right <laughs> man now you're talking and that's what I, I just I just put together a video on Facebook and on YouTube man where I say that pretty much that but now we can, I don't, look I'm not saying Bernie's a sellout some people are really going the extremes they're very emotional right now what I'm saying is Bernie has started something it's our job to finish it we need to focus on down ticket ballots we need to focus on Congress people and getting people in city councils and ex- expanding uh, our reach and, and reaching out to other politicians who hold progressive beliefs. We cannot tune out now. Cause see, that's the, that's the fear I have, Jason, that people are going to put their heads under a rock and say, I hate politics. I don't want to do this. No, no. This is where we have to double down. So I'm with you all the way, brother. We need to now refocus our energy and realign ourselves and realize that, hey, we can't just expect this to happen overnight. You don't just add water and win an election and win the presidency. We have to build from the ground up, and we need to do that through grassroots. We have it in place. Let's go do it. My thing is we got to get money out of politics. But until then, we have to fight to get to fund the candidates that we believe in so they don't have to take that special interest money. They can take our money, and we will fund our, our people. So, uh, Tim Black, is that going to be Jill Stein for you in this election? You know what? I just reached out to. It's funny. I just reached out to Jill Stein's people, uh, Gloria Materas. I just, I just text her. Uh, I do want to get Jill on my show and talk to her about it. I'm not. You know, we got to vet Jill. You got to take a real good look. I know we talked uh-huh. about it. And I was, bur- I'm burning a bus, but I really need to have that conversation because I know that my viewers they are going to be doubly suspicious now, and I want to make sure that if they do this, that we do it for the right reasons, not just because we're jumping and pivoting, but we actually have thought out what we're doing because this is a big move for us to make this move and i don't know if today is the day to make that decision how do you like donald trump <laughs> look, look let's make something <laughs> perfectly clear man i wish donald trump would shed his big mouth i'm not interested in donald trump these these trump these trump uh, these empty trumpets these empty suit trumpets <laughs> that are on the internet that are approaching me now listen i have no interest in none of my followers none of my the people that listen to the tim black show are interested in trump let's not go that far that's crazy talk 
I, I want, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. Is there anything that Hillary Clinton can do in the months ahead that would win you, her, win, win, what's the word I'm looking for? That would win, win you over. Vote. Win you over. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Deal to deal. Yeah. Well, you know, man, see, that's the thing, brother. It's, it's going to require Hillary to become a better candidate. And what I mean by that is when she has these moments um, where she can prove authenticity, where she can it's, – it's an emotion. This is an emotional decision at this point. She's saying the right things, Jason. Arthur, she's saying the right things. But we have to feel that we can believe that she will actually bring those things to fruition and that she will expend the political capital to get it done. You can promise me anything, but if I, you know, but at the end of the day, you go dance with another guy. I mean, hey, you know, what good is that? So we need to, we just need to believe in her. And can she do that? Can she undo the flip-flopping and the rebounding and the jump shots and the fadeaways that she's been doing and, and then prove to us that, yes, no, this is the real Hillary. The, Hill, the real Hillary just stood up. The real Hillary just stood up. Are we going to be able to believe that? So that's the thing. She's got to make faith. She's got to make faith. Man, she's got to do it, man. If she can do that, I think she can secure the election. Oh, man, all right. All right, man. We, we, this is a start, I guess, for you, for everyone left in this race. You're a winnable, gettable voter, and see how it goes, man. Um, thanks for coming on the show. This is great. All right, now. Thank you, guys. You take care. Yeah, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. All right, that was Tim Black. He is the host of the Tim Black Show, which you can watch on YouTube or download on iTunes. Uh, we have a great show. Please stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. Joining us now, we have Zachary Carter. Hello, everyone. Carter. And we also have Lauren Weber. Hey, guys. Editor of the Morning Email. Always a party. Yes, exactly. Um, And speaking of parties, we want to sort of just like tip up the curtain a little bit because next week we got two, well, we start our, 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 our quadrennial uh, obsession with political conventions, beginning with the Republican one in Cleveland, Ohio, and then eventually moving to Philadelphia where the Democrats will do theirs. But this week, uh, first of all, um, Arthur's not here, so we can talk about the time concession we're making. Uh, 
let's just say the vice presidential pick Trump made that you know about, we're still absorbing it. It's still too much for us to absorb and talk about. We'll, we don't know if it's real yet. Yeah, it's, we, yeah it's, it's still not sure. All right, we'll just, we'll just tell you right now we're recording this before Friday. So, um, <laughs> Since you're listening to this right. after yes. Friday morning. Yes. So this week we finally did get a sense of the kind of uh, people that we'd be coming to speak at the Republican convention in Cleveland. And what a batch they are. Four years ago, this was out three weeks in advance. This time it's more like three days in advance. And it features Tim Tebow and a bunch of politicos that you may or may not have heard and of. And Peter Thiel. And Peter Thiel, who will be... I believe it's pronounced Teal. Teal, Teal. you're right. Yeah. It's Teal. That's it's spelled, my bad. It's spelled Thiel. He's I was a just, very rich I was man. Just, I was just being bitter because of the gawker shutdown. Sure, sure. Mm. Yeah, it'll be a, it, that's on strategic lawsuits against public participation night at the convention, <laughs> which is the third night. There's going to literally be a night about Benghazi. And Clinton's infidelities. And a, literally a night about Clinton's sex life. Bill Clinton. What? Bill Clinton's sex life. But Bill still, Clinton. what? I mean, I don't, what? Because it's the 90s, man. It's the 90s. I wish it was the well, 90s. Well, the uh, conventional wisdom. <laughs> Ooh. Oh. Oh, Back yeah. with the pun. Uh, Would be the auditioning to be on with all due respect. <laughs> 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 the conventional wisdom uh, in most at most in most of these conventions is that you you do want to get your base fired up, right? Yeah, about, about the things that, that matter to the base. It's it's a big party for people who identify as being Republicans. Um, but there are a lot of Republicans who, like, maybe don't agree with Trump on a lot of issues because it's not clear that Trump agrees with himself on a lot of issues. But we do Small know problems. that Republicans don't like Bill Clinton, probably because of the sex, but mostly because he used to be a Democratic president. And we also know that Republicans know something fishy happened with that Benghazi stuff. There's something, something, something that's not quite right with that. And and that's what they like to talk about. So, I mean, I don't think it's that. It, I, I think it's kind of like... It makes them look dumb, but I, you know, if, if the goal is to is to just get if, try to try to connect with Republican voters who maybe Donald Trump has not connected with so far, I don't I don't think it's a terrible strategy. I'm surprised they're not just like live streaming that 13 hours movie again. You don't know they might be. They might be. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is just a this this is like an unofficial draft leaked about who would be speaking at the convention. Yeah, so um, you heard it from here first. That's happening. I was also think, don't you think maybe you could have focused on, like, the Clinton email scandal instead of Benghazi at this yeah, point? I would have thought that... that would have been more. Obviously, it's had a hit on her in the polls. Why would we not focus on that more? To be perfectly sure, I'm sure it will come up. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> just maybe, Jason, just maybe. But, but yeah, I guess they're not going to have a night about that. And that's really interesting because as we've approached the convention, polls have tightened. Both national polls and swing state polls have tightened. It's been probably the worst polling week of Clinton's life. And I say it that way because Trump has not gained much elevation. We've just seen some She's support. She's just dropped. She's just dropped. And, and, and finally, we're seeing that the FBI's ruling in the email case is playing a role. Now, Trump kind of boofed that the first time he had a chance to talk about it. And he's kind of boofing it now because in the specter of this convention, he's also suing a former aide named Sam Number For $10 million. Which seems to be a huge kind of distraction. But... At the same time, yes, it seems weird that they're going to go back and refer to Bill Clinton's uh, infidelities instead of something that seems to be actually generating movement in the polls, at least negative movement for her. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it's funny, too, because it's not like Trump has this like record of being this super, you know, 
<laughs> um, uh, upright and non-philandering, yeah, respectful fellow. Yeah, so why would we fellow. spend that time on that? I mean, it's seriously, though. It's... But it's not like it's not like hypocrisy ever damages Trump, with Republicans at least. Yeah, so. he has the ultimate Teflon. He has Pam Bondi, the Florida AG, coming to speak at the convention. And this is literally an attorney general. He bought off to keep her from investigating <laughs> Trump University. Like if you if you were thinking Dear that Lord. he would go and like do his best to sort of like not remind people of his improprieties, guess what? Um I think a lot of news has been has been focused on like the Republicans who aren't going to this convention and there are a lot of jokes being made that like there's not a lot of star wattage at this convention, both in terms of like the sort of like celebrities that he thought he'd bring mm. and the Tim Tebow. Woo. And yeah, the, that's, a, that's a step down from Tom Brady and the pol- pol- politicos who many, many of whom will be avoiding this for, for various reasons, for various I, reasons. I yeah. think it's just one reason. Well, You're right. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't mean to suggest that there's any more but one reason, but I, I think that we maybe tend to joke about that. But I mean, when I think about it, Rationally, this has always been the anti-establishment campaign. So the fact that there's not a bunch of front benchers and back benchers from the House and Senate attending, I don't think it bothers Trump one bit, and I don't think it bothers his fans one bit. And in terms of celebrities, it's a political convention. When is it? When have they ever had top celebrities at a political convention? It's always a little bit lame because politicians only really know lame people. And and occasionally, when you do have somebody who's uh, you know a, a top tier celebrity, at, at, particularly with Republicans, it often backfires. Like we all remember in 2012 mm, when Clint we? Eastwood showed up and just weirded everybody out, right? Um, and and that that was that was the big celebrity moment that that, that Republicans got out of it. I, I just don't, and I, I don't think, frankly, I don't think Clint Eastwood not weirding everybody out would have been like this great PR coup that would have helped Republicans win the 2012 presidential election yeah. either. It's it, it's a party for people who. It's your reward for being somebody who spends enough money to go to the convention. Yeah, <laughs> for yeah, being exactly. someone who's who you know for your life has been really committed to this party's you know sort of partisan p- political process. Um, I, I do think, uh, with with respect to the Democratic side of things, which we don't have you know we don't have information just yet about about uh, how that is going to shape up because it's still a week away. Um, we don't yet have a real clear idea of what the Democrats are running on. Oh, yeah, that's a, um, that's a that's really a very good point. And and, you know, we, we can't talk about what people are going to show up. But, because we don't know. Right. But so far, it seems to me and you mentioned the poll numbers earlier that the, the basic strategy for the Clinton campaign is to talk trash about Donald Trump. And then try to sort of rely on a cult of personality around Clinton herself. I mean, the main slogan is I'm with her um, rather than talk about specific policy issues that you know, they want to see happen in the next couple of years. Like, this is what we're going to do. Um, and that just seems like it's not a particularly good strategy. So they do have an opportunity to maybe figure that out and do something about it. But it would be nice, I think. I, I think I would be less frightened of a fascist takeover if I saw some sort of coherent policy message coming from the Democrats. I feel like, though, there'll be loads of fabulous speeches, at least at the DNC, no? I mean, don't you think there'll be a couple moments where uh, some stars are born, or no? Well, I mean, there we know, for instance, that Elizabeth Warren is going to be there. Yeah. And she yeah. gives pretty good speeches. So there'll be at least one good one. I mean, one. Bernie Sanders is giving a speech, no? He, he gives pretty good speeches yeah, to Democrats. So. Um, you know, I also think, if you remember 2012, I mean, people who have been... Uh, you know, Bill Clinton supporters Clinton. for a long time. I mean, Bill Clinton, of course, but people people sort of lowered on the totem pole, like uh, Jennifer Granholm, former governor of mm-hmm. Michigan. She gave a total barn burner for, for Obama in 2012. It was, yeah, it was really good. Um, they've got a lot of people who can give speeches and make Democrats feel awesome. Remember Joe Biden? But is yeah. there, but you know? I, to go back to what you're talking <laughs> yeah, no, about, 
sure, they'll have a lot of people Democrats love, and maybe a lot of people that that come off as perhaps more humane to independent voters. But you're right. I still am looking for that sort of like purchase of where this campaign stands on things. I just want to just point out one thing. This week, there was a McKinsey study out that said that 81% of U.S. households have experienced flat or falling incomes over the last decade. That's really the setting for where this is happening, for what's going on, and the kind of things that I would expect these parties to address. And I would expect the Democrats to sort of have an answer for this and to talk about this. But I've been relentlessly suffocated by Clinton's focus on the professional class and all of this. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. to me, when she talks about when she talks about, oh, well, we're going to make it easier for people to start tech startups. It's like she read Jim Vandehei's weird innovation party uh, platform. <laughs> I'm sure piece. she talked to him about it. I'm I sure she you, did. I bet you he called her. And that, that's where she's pitching it. Yeah. And I, I can see why, because I feel like it's almost like a media strategy. Yeah. The media has never really liked her. She's never been able to get along. Mm-hmm. So she's going to like really go hard at all those kind of like weird professional class uh, obsessions that the media has with innovation and entrepreneurship and try to maybe win them over that way. But I'm still interested in seeing because I'm in the professional class. I'm a member of the professional class. I'm still interested in seeing Clinton do or say something about politics that's not that's occurring somewhere further than 10 feet, a 10 feet radius around my body and life, you know, somewhere else where other people live and where politics happens. And I don't I'm not seeing that yet out of her campaign. And I think this is kind of I mean, I, I do think that policies like raising the minimum wage, you know, equal pay. These are things that act, that, that do affect working people, not just not, not just college professional policy. People. I mean, right. And, you, and if you look at, at the, um, the the party platform debate that's gone on, you know, a lot of times these are really, really boring processes. Um, but some years it does seem like the platform is a big deal and it's it, and it matters to people. And there have been these really, really heated, tough, close debates over the language in the Democratic Party platform, which is not official yet. Uh, and then also these really complex behind-the-scenes deals between Sanders activists and Clinton delegates um, for where they put forward you know, compromise amendments. So it's really clear that there are people in the party who are really, really obsessed with what the policy agenda is going to look like. But I, I would just like to see, you know, two or three things. Like, like you know, I felt like... You could criticize the Sanders campaign for being short on on details and specifics, right? But you knew what he was go- going for, right? It was like he's going to make college free, and he's <laughs> going to make healthcare. He's going to give everybody healthcare, single payer healthcare. That was like okay, all right. He's going to break up the banks too. Yeah, I was going to say sure. you don't forget that, <laughs> right? But you, you knew that. I was all right. Well, that's that's basically the Sanders platform, right? Um, the Clinton platform. It's like there are a thousand little things, which basically to me say if, if I was going to if I were going to sum it up, we will be competent technocratic managers of the state, <laughs> and that that doesn't seem like it's. You know, I mean, even the way that people talk about Trump as being <laughs> Trump being unqualified or temperamentally unfit. I mean, it's sort of just like saying, "Hey, I have a better resume." We'll diversify uh, the boardroom in Northrop Grumman. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear yeah. Lord. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, to it, next week we get started the Republican convention in Cleveland. The Huffington Post will be there covering it. Please tune in and listen and watch and read. Uh, and then we'll be in Philadelphia after that. Uh, so thanks, guys. Miss you already. Thank you. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So 
One year ago, on July 13, 2015, 28-year-old African-American woman named Sandra Bland was stopped by police on a routine traffic stop in Waller County, Texas. She ended up dead in her prison cell later on that day. There have been a lot of questions about how she came to perish while in police custody. We at the Huffington Post are going to peel back the onion in a different way and take a look at the way many, 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 many people keep perishing in police custody, both under mysterious circumstances and preventable ones. Joining us to talk about an extensive survey that was taken of the U.S. prison industrial complex, we have Ryan Riley. You can say hello. Oh, hello. How are you? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having us. That's, that was your cue to say hi. <laughs> and, uh, and Dana Liebelson. Hello, how's See, it going? She knows what she, she knows. Exactly. She's a she's, she's, a, pro. she's a pro. Yeah. So, g- guys, tell us about this uh, this massive project that you undertook to to uh, to try to like learn more about how it comes to pass that people die while in prison or in police custody. So, um, we decided that we wanted to count every single death that we could in a jail in the United States in the year since Bland died. Uh, Just to clarify, we only counted jails, not prisons. And the big difference here is that jails are short-term facilities for the most part, where most people are not convicted. So we're talking about a population that's not only unarmed by definition, or they should be unarmed, but they also haven't been found guilty of anything. Um, so that was kind of the thinking behind the project, and Ryan will tell you more now. Yeah, I mean, so essentially we wanted to see basically how often this sort of thing happened. Um, and there were some uh, some limited statistics out there, but when we took a closer look at what uh, the Justice Department actually puts out, um, it turns out that they only put out that data three years after the fact. And crucially, it doesn't include the actual names of the facilities or you know, the names of the people who died or that sort of information. All it includes is the, the state-level average. So you know how many people maybe died in jails in that state from three years ago, but you don't know what facilities it is. And that's really crucial because when you want to actually talk about saying, hey, where do we have the most problems? What jail should we give a closer look to? Where are there problems happening and what can be fixed here? And, you know, who's doing things well even? That's uh, that's a crucial stat to be able to have. And that's one that is, is not public and, in fact, actually wasn't even shared within the Justice Department um, to the, uh, the, the part of the Civil Rights Division that is charged with investigating, uh, you know, unconstitutional conditions within jails across the country. How difficult was it to obtain this information? So this has been a project that we have been working on for at least the last two months, uh, utilizing most of the newsroom and lots of promises for pizza that I will never fulfill. Um, But, you know, breaking news. Yeah. yeah. Dana Liebelson trumps (laughs) her colleagues. Uh, So we did a bunch of different things. We scoured news reports. Uh, We also filed a whole bunch of public records requests. We had, you know, fellows working on it full time. We were calling coroner's office. We were calling sheriff's departments. Uh, You know, everything we kind of could do to get at the information that we wanted, uh, which was much more detailed than what the Justice Department releases. For example, we were looking at people's names, age, what they went to jail for, um, and, and most crucially, sort of how long they were in jail before they died, which leads us to, like, the biggest finding of the project that Ryan is going to introduce right now. About suicides? And, and, and how quickly people die in jail. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, people, you know, die very quickly when they, when they get to jail. Um, it's basically, you know, what we found looking at the statistics. I think, you know, we have, uh, you know, suicides are in the, in the first few days, we have over a third uh, of the deaths take place. Um, so it's, it's pretty quick. Um, yeah, I was, struck, I was struck by just how critical that first 72-hour period is in these cases. 
It is. Yeah, it's essential. I mean, you know, it shouldn't be that shocking, though, right? Because there's this thing, you know, of, of uh, shock of confinement. And I think one thing that we um, that people think about, it, you know, when they think about, oh, people who are in jail, they may be think of people who maybe, you know, first of all are convicted or think of people who have done some serious, have some serious wrongdoing. So I think one thing we have to think about is that a lot of this is what I uh, artfully termed low-level bullshit um, in our uh, official data analysis of this. Uh, it's, you know, someone driving on a suspended license and you go to jail for that. And, you know, a whole bunch of those, you know, trespassing charges and um, lower, you know, very minor things of that nature. Um, but, you're get, dealing with a population that, you know, may have some pre-existing um, mental issues and also importantly is, you know, maybe never dealt with um, the jail system before or perhaps is cycled in and out of it so often that it's essentially ripped apart their lives and, and destroyed it and can cause some real mental a- anguish and pain to these people. Um, you know, and so you, I think that we have to like step back and, and think about, you know, a lot of the experts that we talked to are sort of saying that this is something that because it's so commonplace, it's sort of just accepted. And it it is sort of, you know, we sh- should step back and say, okay, putting people, putting a person inside of a, of a confined um, building and not letting them, you know, contact their, not allowing them to contact their family members, taking away every form of freedom uh, that they have, sometimes just because they can't afford uh, to pay a certain amount of money for some very low level um, offense or, you know, municipal ordinance violation um, is an extraordinary, you know, thing to do. I mean, so that's especially so, for people who are not convicted of anything in a lot of cases. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to have like a really powerful reason or a good, you should have a really powerful reason why this person has to be confined and, and confined. And it should really have something to do with public safety rather than they owe the state money is uh, not a good way to go about well, doing and, that. Uh, sorry, Dana. Go I was going to say, and when he's talking about owing the state money, he's talking about uh, posting bail or posting bond, right. um, which, you know, Sandra Bland, for example, she couldn't come up with the money for a $500 bond. Uh, we have cases where someone was staying in jail, you know, for example, because his family couldn't pay a $200 bond. I mean, it's just we're talking about really low levels of money and, and it's keeping people in jail where they might really be having a psychological breakdown where they don't have the medical or the mental health resources to help them get through it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. And the well, incredible thing is, too, I mean, with the Bland case, you know, that was $500, but that was that would have just been to pay a bails bondsman, right? So her actual fee was 5 thousand dollars um which was you know sort of insurmountable for her and i think a lot you know a vast majority of americans well one of one of the things that we we've we talked we talked about yeah here we've written about here is the extent to which yeah this is low-level bullshit but it all adds up to real profitability for municipalities some of these uh municipalities rely on their uh you know local criminal justice jail concerns to be revenue generators was there any kind of like correlation uh in the, uh, to that is there anything is sorry no correlation but is there is there a takeaway did we learn anything about the role of these kind of like crazy hyped up revenue generating operations like we've seen in St. Louis County yeah so i mean so one thing is that a lot of the the bails are often very closely tied to the underlying offenses or the fees that the person owes so those so those sort of are mashed up together a lot of the time so you know you'll get arrested and it turns out that you had a warrant because you didn't appear in court because you thought that the judge was going to throw you in in jail because you couldn't pay these fees because a lot of these courts don't really operate very fairly at all. 
Um, so when you are, you know, next pulled over for a traffic stop that you're, someone's going to see all of those, you know, outstanding warrants, they're going to take you and they're going to hold you until you pay that money. Yeah. And, you know, that money is in theory, it's supposed to be, um, you know, saying that you're going to appear in court again, but in practice that you're never going to see that money again. That's all going to go towards your underlying fees that you couldn't afford in the first place just to buy yourself out uh, of a confined, of a confined cell. And that's, you know, one of the, one of the women we talked to in the project, um, is actually a woman who tried to, um, commit suicide and thankfully survived, um, uh, inside, uh, a facility in Berkeley, which was right next to, uh, Ferguson and, you know, had a lot of the same problems that Ferguson did and have a lot of the same problems that St. Louis County did. Um, and I mean, she was taken in and she owed, she was, you know, she's on food stamps, she's on disability, she, this isn't, and she has some underlying mental health issues and you know, she's a mother of three. And this wasn't a situation, this, she couldn't afford to buy herself out. She owed, uh, over $2,000, uh, um, in order to, you know, buy her freedom essentially. Um, and that was something that you know, was insurmountable for her. And when I went to talk to the, uh, the police chief there about it, um, I mean, he was pretty dismissive overall, I think, about just the idea of, of the conditions that uh, he, he kept her in and he kept other people there in, um, you know, saying basically it wasn't it wasn't so bad, um, you know, basically that she was only she only attempted suicide because she wanted to get out. Um, and, but also just was very dismissive of the idea that this was a woman who couldn't afford what they were asking of her and, you know, said, well, she cert could certainly afford uh, the pot that <laughs> that she had bought. I mean, it was just very, you know, dismissive. Very dismissive. Of, yeah. I mean, because I think a lot of people do understand that sometimes they get knit up in the system and they're stuck in debt. And that mm -hmm. maybe adds to the yeah, hopelessness. Yeah, it's, it's a really kind of vicious cycle that we see people get caught in. And the reason I bring up the whole profitability argument here is that uh, as a lot of people have argued recently, especially uh, when you pair this with the, the overall gun violence you see on the, street, in the streets, that um, right now we've kind of asked our police force and our criminal justice system to be now the first interveners and the first responders in America's exploding mental health crisis. Right. And uh, do you think that some of the profits that are being made could be plowed back into making the system better? Because it seems to me that you, in, in, in your piece, you, you guys piece, you, you, you cite at least one example of a facility that actually does have healthcare right. uh, yeah. professionals intervene and it's it's actually causing a, a beneficial effect on prison population or jail Yeah, population. I talked to a county in Texas that utilizes something called a crisis intervention team. Uh, and what they do is, you know, they recognize that sometimes people just need mental health treatment and they're committing offenses due to mental health issues. Uh, so what they do is they divert people into the mental health system instead of charging them with a crime. Last year, they diverted 200, uh, over 200 people. Um, and they sort of estimated in a ballpark that that was saving their county hundreds of thousands of dollars a year because it's really, really uh, potentially more. It's very expensive to keep people with mental health issues in jail and give them the fair, like humane treatment that they need. So, you know, I would say absolutely, you know, keeping people out of jail is going to save save counties money in, in those like nonviolent cases. Right. Like we're not talking about sure, people sure. charged with murder. Um, so by the time you all will be hearing the segment, this piece will be up on the Huffington Post. Is there anything that you really would urge uh, readers and our listeners to to uh, to really think about having having been through this process and done this very, very arduous research? What what would you say is the main thing you'd like people to focus on when thinking about this? I mean, to me, it's I think that, first of all, sort of open up your mind about what um, sort of the underlying offenses are in these cases. And right, a lot of people go to jail. Um, you know, there's a lot of things pretty much. I, I would venture to say that the vast, overwhelming majority of people in the United States, probably something in the 90s 
something odd percentile have done something within their lives they could have been arrested for. Um, I mean, in Texas, actually, it turned and there's the underlying offense of broke, having a broken taillight actually can be an arrestable offense. So, I mean, there's, you know, I, pretty much everyone has done something that they could have gone to jail for. And I think that there has to be a conversation about, you know, how we're using jails and whether or not um, we're and what purposes and what uh, we're really using these facilities for and whether, you know, the practices that we have are just so commonplace um, and, you know, sort of reevaluating and rethinking about uh, the way they're used would save a lot of lives as well as just implementing these practices that um, would just save lives of people who do um, have to be held for some reason. All right. I can I add one more thing. Real yeah, quick? definitely. I would I would just urge people to reach out to us. A lot of people have family members and friends who've been to jail. It feels like a really isolating experience, especially if you do know someone who's died in jail. But it doesn't have to be that way, and it's not something that you know a family has to burden alone. Because a lot of times there's a lot of systemic stuff happening behind it. Um, so you know we're trying to still fill out our database. So we're we're urging people to reach out to us with more information, um, and uh, yeah, check it out. All right, uh, Ryan, Dana, thanks so much for coming on the show. You guys should head out to the Huffington Post and look for that. It will be under our Highline section, um, and it should be there waiting for you to explore. It was a lot of hard work. These guys deserve a lot of commendations, and if anyone can help, maybe Dana help subsidize all that pizza promise. Uh, we'd be interested in that, too. All right, thanks, guys. We will be right back. We're back. Do not adjust your audio settings if we sound a little different because we have left the studio for this segment and we have been graciously welcomed into the office of Wisconsin Congressman Reed Ribble. I'm with Arthur Delaney. Hello. Thank you for having us in your office. Well, thanks for coming over. I, it's good to, good to see you guys face to face. It week. is great. <laughs> it is really great. Um, we, have a, we have a bunch of things we want to talk about today. I guess the first thing we want to talk about is uh, a little bit of like legislative action. Arthur? Well, uh, Congressman, this week you dropped some serious legislation, um, and it's about Social Security. It's it's bipartisan, and it seems like it's 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 your last hurrah because we're about to have this huge August recess, and then you won't be sticking around for another term. So tell us about the timing and uh, the legislation itself. Well, the timing was in part that. Uh in the last five or six years that I've been working on this issue, I, I kept expecting somebody to do it. Every every budget hearing I was in, the actuaries would come in and say, you guys need to fix this. The the, the program's going insolvent in 2032 or 2034. Uh, time is your friend. It, it's also your enemy if you wait too long. And uh, But I was expecting the committees to do it, but they didn't. And so about a year and a half ago, I started really working on the arithmetic. It's fairly complicated. And began to try to craft what I felt was the the broadest, uh, most balanced solution to uh, fixing the Social Security system uh, that the country's seen since 1983. And you kind of previewed it a little bit on a previous podcast. And this, uh, your approach has been to either sort of like approach it from a standpoint of we'll do something everyone likes slash hates, and we'll see if we can uh, we'll see if people will will pass it on the basis of its comprehensiveness. Yeah, and I think if you look at any of the provisions in a vacuum, just that provision, there's a lot of things that would cause you to reject it. Yeah, it gets freighted with right. politics. Right, but if you look at the whole thing, you, you're, you're better able to say, you know what, I can take this provision because they did that provision as well. So it's a blend of uh, about one-third of increased revenue, 
uh, a blend of about one-third correction by adjusting the age and one-third by manipulating the benefits so that we can redirect more money to those in poverty and very aged while protecting the middle class. Simultaneously, if you've done well in this nation's economy uh, and you're earning above the cap, which is 118000 today, we're going to readjust the cap back to, to where it was in 1983 when Ronald Reagan did his reform, and, and it will collect on 90% of payrolls rather than the 81% of payrolls we're doing now, today. Congressman Reed Ribble, that's a little wonky, but this is the most interesting part, perhaps, uh, from a politics perspective, because you're a Republican and what you're describing is a just giant tax hike. So describe more about the cap and what you would do to change it. Yeah, this yeah. And, and I, I, I might challenge that it's a giant tax increase, but sure, it's a, sure, it's a sure. tax increase. <laughs> let me, giant, let me put it to you this way. way. Yeah. Let me put it to you this way. We have a massive hole of $11.4 trillion. This, this increase in revenue is about one-third of that over 75 years. However, the cap is set at $118,000 in rough numbers today, meaning if you earn $80,000 a year, you're going to have Social Security withholding on 100% of that. Mm -hmm. If you own $236,000 a year, you're going to have Social Security withholding on one half of it. And so what I'm saying is let's take a look at all payrolls that are received inside the United States, and let's set that cap at a level that we're, we're capturing the tax on 90% of those payrolls. So it still stays a bit regressive because the payout is progressive, but we get that cap back up so that today's worker is paying an equivalent in today's dollars to what their parents paid in 1983 because right now the tax is actually lower in real dollars than it was then. So the likelihood of Congress taking this up, I mean, it's not coming out of the Committee of Jurisdiction. It's going to be a lame duck Congress. It seems... Not all that likely, but are you hoping that by virtue of yourself being a Republican and your Republican co-sponsors that this is something of an icebreaker? Well, I've got bipartisan co-sponsors, um, so that helps. It's the only bipartisan bill on Social Security reform that's in the Congress right now. And quite frankly, guys, with the power of this show and the reach of this we show, we this know. could just shove it over the top. We know, yeah. But, the but in, You're in, not exaggerating. In, yeah, in reality, I appreciate that. In reality, though— um, you have almost the perfect storm here. You've got a Republican Congress with a Democrat president. You have the Democrat president outgoing with with a legacy on his mind. This is the type of bipartisan fix that could happen in the lame duck because it would solve a problem and take it off the table for the future Congress and president. He used to talk about wanting a grand bargain, but that's been out of style for uh, at least. Well, he never a really talked. He never really talked about wanting a grand bargain because he set up the Simpson Bowles Commission, then rejected the grand bargain. However, he did offer in 2013 with his budget proposal to go to a different form of COLA, the cost of living adjustment, which would bring the benefit down just slightly for seniors. But most people in Congress rejected it because it was offered in a vacuum without any other, uh, any other benefit changes. So in essence, what the president was saying is, we're going to put the entire onus on the backs of seniors. Yeah. And, and so his own party rejected that. If he had said, you know what, guys, I'll do the COLA if you'll do something on the cap, he would have started the, the framework of getting to this deal. Whether this happens this year or 10 years from now, this will be the framework that it's going to be. You've created a precedent That's right. for it. I wanted to, so you're, you're leaving Congress, and you've, we've asked you a bunch of questions in the past about your experience here and how things could be better. We've talked about biennial budgeting. 
uh, we've talked about what was the thing we talked about before? Uh, we're talking about putting cameras. Oh yeah, yeah. Getting you, rid of the cameras. Yes, you defended. You defended a lot. Of, some people say get rid of the cameras. You defended the cameras here. We've walked in the office. We know you have C-SPAN on, so we know you're a big C-SPAN fan. So my question today, and this is a really controversial thing, government reform. Some argue that what I'm about to suggest would bring back was corrupt. And other people argue that it was actually necessary to grease the wheels. What about bringing back earmarks? Oh, well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, an, of the overall earmark ban, again, done in a vacuum, where we just say, carte blanche, you can't do this. Because under the U.S. Constitution, the power of the purse resides here in the Congress, not in the, not in the executive branch. By eliminating earmarks where members of Congress can actually target that spending, you're basically saying, here you go, President, here's some money, do with it right. what you it's want. it's your job to spend the money. And what I would have preferred that the Congress had done, rather than just saying we're not going to do earmarks anymore, that they would say we're going to have on every authorization or every um, appropriation, we're going to have a period of debate on earmarks that members can go to the floor of the House. It's all publicized. It's all on TV. It's all covered. And make your case in front of the American people of why you you need the money for this uh, dredging of this port in your district or this new road that has to be built uh, and make the case in a transparent fashion so that if, in fact, it is just wasteful spending, you then will have to bear the brunt of that with your voters back home. People say that without earmarks, there is now no way for legislators on the losing side of a big legislative fight to save face. And that sort of like ramps up the ideological, the need to like notch the ideological bedpost back home. Because when you've lost big debates on Obamacare, when you've lost big debates on Social Security, uh, you've got to go back and tell your constituents, well, we fought for this, what you wanted, and we didn't, we didn't bring it home. But you used to be able to say, but there's an airport now. There's an off-ramp. The Reed yeah. Ribble Airport off-ramp. Now you can't yeah. say that anymore. Well, that, yeah, that, that's true. You can't really say that anymore. Um, since I've only been here under the post-earmark ban, the earmark ban happened the first week I right. was here. Yeah, yeah. You never got to I, I don't, it. I, did, I never got a chance to experience what, what the dynamic was, what, the, what you're describing as a quid pro quo was. Behind such a, such the, a dirty word. Behind the scenes. And so I wasn't able to, to, to comment on it. But I, I do think that the system would work better. And Congress, those of us who represent individual citizens in our own congressional districts, we know what those federal needs are in our districts better than what a federal agency would. So, uh, Congressman Reed Ribble, mm-hmm. are you going to Cleveland next week? Huffington Post will be there. And like fifteen thousand other journalists. It'd be cool to see you. You guys, you guys are going, so it's absolutely not necessary for me to be there. <laughs> I, can just tune, I, I can just tune in and watch it on the on. on Michael TV. Simon's got a good but, barbecue but, joint. But no, mm-hmm. um, I'm disappointed. I thought maybe I was going to be getting a speaking engagement, but it didn't come. The invitation did. You show weren't on up. the draft. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't on the on on anything. I, a handful so. of Republicans will be there. Yes, well, no, there's going to be a lot of Republicans there. There'll be uh, a lot of, uh, and a lot of grassroots Republicans will be there. there I, I believe that attendance at this convention will be very high, in part um, because it is a unique moment of history. There is no other candidate that's been like Donald Trump. And so he's going to draw both the good and the bad to Cleveland. And I, I would expect there to be a fair number of protests outside, uh, vocal protests, and I would expect it to be a raucous meeting inside. I think it's going to be like kind of the Gapers Block Convention. Well, I have like no a- idea what they're going to be doing, but I, 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 I like you. Well, you're going to be watching it from your remote screen outside the convention hall. I'll be watching it from my television. 
even more remote. Yes, even more remote. Um, do you do you feel that Donald Trump is getting a higher level of respect right now by virtue of his being the Republican nominee? For instance, Ruth Bader Ginsburg apologized for merely calling him a faker. I think, which she obviously I think is. what she did wisely in, in even that move from her standpoint was a political move because she took the weapon away from him because he's been able to, to rail about that for two weeks now. And by her coming out and apologizing, something that Donald Trump apparently has never done in his life, mm. she, she, actually, she actually took took the chain and let it go. But, I mean, who and was uh, apologizing to him before he was, you know, the yeah. nominee? Well, yeah, it it I, seems I like think, this is uh, but, I mean, there, there is a certain amount of gravitas that you have being the presumptive nominee and ultimately, I believe, will be the nominee. And so um, he clearly uh, got a lot of support out there. And... and um, his enthusiasm in Wisconsin isn't as big as other parts of the country, so it's a little bit tougher for me to measure. Really, Wisconsin seems very immune to his charms. Uh, yeah, he, he, uh, he's not real popular there. I think he's gaining popular, popularity, and I think some of the polls are showing that. But um, conservative talk radio is still not on the Trump bandwagon. Not in so, Wisconsin. Not in Wisconsin, that's correct. You call him a three-year-old. Does this gravitas make him more of a five-year-old? No, not in my opinion. I think you're kind of right where he is. I think I sized him up right the first time. The first time I said that, by the way, someone called my office within minutes and said I, I had to apologize to every three-year-old out there because it was an insult to them. <laughs> um, um, but it wasn't intended to do that. I, I, I use that language in part to, to focus attention on the fact that at some point we have to elevate our dialogue. The idea of throwing sand at each other in the sandbox is not how you resolve conflict in this country. You resolve conflict when you are able to sit down with someone side by side and show enough common decency and respect that you can hear them out. So that so exactly what's not really happening right now. That's what, right. The, the gravi- despite the increased gravity. I mean, right costs. now in America, not right now in this podcast, because I think we're being pretty great. Right There's now. no no one's throwing sand in here. Right, I think we're we're setting an let example. The, let the today. record we show. We are. <laughs> All right. Well, <clears throat> this is great. Thank you for having us over to your office. Um, we look forward to having a few more conversations with you before It'd you be fun. before you retire. Yeah. Right uh, off into the sunset. And uh, yeah. on really hot, muggy days like this, we uh, we, we wish we, we wish you getting getting back to Wisconsin as safe and sound and as quickly as possible because it's gross. Out the weather's there. much better there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you very much, Congressman Reed Ribble, Arthur Delaney. We will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble, host of the Tim Black Show, Tim Black, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Dana Liebelson, Ryan Riley, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.